0: One of these days, I'm going to remember to hit the mute button before I start talking. <laughs> um, but we are here. And while we're waiting for Azim Chowdhury to uh, log, there's Azim, We'll have him on here shortly. Um, I see a lot of familiar faces here. Thanks, guys, for for joining us again. Uh, And for anybody uh, listening to the recording later who happens to have stumbled upon Kassah and doesn't know what we do, we are the Consumer Advocates for Smoke-Free Alternatives Association. And you can find out. All the stuff you need to know about us and what we're supporting here in terms of harm reduction, tobacco harm reduction, safer, smoke-free alternatives to cigarettes at our website, casaa.org, C-A-S-A-A dot org. Uh, We've got merch. We've got places to donate and all kinds of information, everything you need to know. Um, So definitely check it out. Give us a follow here on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook uh, to keep up to date with all the goings on. And uh, that's what we're going to be talking about today. Um, our special guest for today's Twitter Space on a special day and time uh, is Azim Chowdhury, um, known to uh, many of us as the uh, the, the vape lawyer. Uh, and um, uh, I figured this is a pretty good opportunity after a couple of weeks of uh, roller coaster news. Uh, about jewel and and vaping in general, um, Azim, uh, maybe actually, I guess I should start from square one here. Maybe uh, take a moment to introduce yourself to our listeners and then we'll get to the topic du jour.
1: Sure, can you guys hear me yep. okay? Great, great. Well, again, thank you uh, to Kasa for inviting me to participate today. Um, certainly. I agree there's a lot going on in this in this space and and i'm happy to provide any insight that i can to to help you guys out um but for those of you who, who aren't familiar with um my practice uh i'm a partner at a firm in dc called keller and heckman um i've been practicing in the in the vape space for uh, quite a while actually most of my career um i started back in in 2009 um you know, shortly around the time of, of the enactment of the Tobacco Control Act, uh, looking into how FDA might regulate um, the e industry. And um, my team here at Keller & Heckman, uh, we're a bunch of lawyers, scientists, and litigators who are, who are advising companies in this space on uh, mostly matters of FDA compliance, uh, regulatory compliance on, on global issues, um, but also state and other federal rules
0: and regulations. I, I, honestly, I'm, I, I I must admit I'm a little embarrassed. I didn't remember or didn't know that your history went back that far. You're you're kind of OG vaping policy guy. So um, thanks yeah. for sticking around. Honestly. <laughs> yeah, you know, uh,
1: you know, I, I, if you ask me uh, every few years, if I if I thought I'd still be doing this, I I'd probably say no. But you know, um, I think that's a testament to the to the industry <laughs> that you know we're still around, uh, able to hire lawyers like me to help out. So, um, despite everything, you know, the industry is, is, is surviving and, and, um, you know, I'm, I'm here for the long run.
0: Excellent. Yeah. We're going to get us one of those, uh, uh, something, uh, vis-a-vis, uh, Ukrainian soldier standing on the banks of an Island, giving the bird to the Russian warship at one of these points. Um, so, yeah. Um, so great. Um, well, I, let's get right into it. Um, uh, you know the, the the main topic of discussion here has been, as I said, the roller coaster ride of the uh, Jewel marketing denial orders. Um, you're probably uh, you are definitely in a much better position to uh, kind of bring everybody up to speed on this. So if you could um, maybe give a little bit of background about the recent news and and how we got to where we are today with with the Jewel.
1: Sure. Yeah. No. Jewel is uh, the whole situation. There has been in. Quite, um, you know, uh, the surprising um, uh, run of, of events of the last couple of weeks here. But most recently, FDA has administratively stayed the marketing denial order that they issued to ju- uh, to Jewel back on, on June 23rd, which means that they effectively have pulled it back for the time being while they re-review it. Um, but, but to start from the top, um, as I'm sure most of you know, uh, all e-cigarette products, all ENDS products are subject to FDA pre-market review. Um, products that have been on the market since August 2016, which was the the date of the deeming rule effective date, uh, were subject to, following a court order, uh, PMTA deadline of September 2020. Um, Juul and many, many other companies uh, timely submitted their applications. Now, of course, Juul's uh, application was, from their public statements, quite comprehensive. Um, I think they announced they submitted over 110 different studies, both clinical trials, non-clinical studies. Uh, they they completed you know uh, loads of different types of of, of assessments of their e liquids, behavioral studies, many of which were published and peer reviewed. Um, and they had the funding to do so. This is a company, of course, that, that is, um, you know, uh, uh, it doesn't have an issue with, with funding in terms of their ability to, to actually conduct the studies and, and, and get that work done in order to meet the, um, PMTA standard, which of course is demonstrating the product is appropriate for the protection of the public health. Um, but of course, Jewel also has, Joule is Jewel, right? They have this history that, um, it was always a bit uh, unclear what FDA, how FDA was going to respond to their application because of this history of of being um, kind of the, the company that everyone points to with respect to kind of jump-starting the quote-unquote youth vaping epidemic and their maybe ill-advised marketing practices from many years ago. Um, Juul, of course, submitted PMTAs. For their tobacco and menthol pods, having um, uh, pulled back their their flavors, their non-tobacco flavors, back in 2018, following you know um, the uproar regarding the uh, youth issue. Um, so, given the fact that that Jewel had submitted very comprehensive applications, that they were focusing on tobacco and menthol, that um, they are not the product that uh, obviously they have been. You know, they've rebranded. Essentially, they don't market the way they used to, um, um, and and they aren't as popular amongst the young people as other products. Right. That have, that have taken over uh, flavored disposables, for example. Um, all that being said, you know, um, the the expectation was given the quality of their application and, and those issues. Um, it, it was just a matter of time before FDA was going to authorize their products. Um, through the PMTA process, um, and of course, you know, despite the political pressure that we have seen from many members of Congress, from, of course, the public health groups, the tobacco control groups, that that you know have viewed and continue to view Juul as as the boogeyman. Um, and so, when the announcement came, you know, the, through the FDA leak, I guess, to the Wall Street Journal. That Jules' applications were going to be denied. I think it's fair to say most everyone following this issue closely was was uh, a bit surprised. You know, despite that political pressure and despite everything else, you know, um, FDA is, is is supposed to be an agency that follows the science, that makes science based decisions, um, and you know, unless there was a, a clear youth issue or or something that uh, we were not aware of. Um, uh, I think we all expected Jewel to get author- authorization, at least for their tobacco uh, flavors. Um, so uh, when the MDO announcement came from FDA the, the next day, um, it was, again, another surprise to see that rather than, you know, um, denying the application for, say, past marketing behavior or uh, the fact that Jewel is still, you know, the top, Five products identified by youth or other youth issues. FDA basically said that uh, they did not get a complete um, uh, tox profile of the product. Um, in, in, in more specifically, that the, the, the MDO, from what I understand, uh, raised concerns about the presence um, of, of certain chemicals that could be uh, leaching from the pods into the liquids and therefore could end up being inhaled. And what FDA ultimately said was because they did not have a complete, uh, picture of the tox profile of the product, they couldn't say for sure whether or not it would be appropriate for the protection of the public health, even if smokers adult, you know, cigarette smokers were switching to Juul. Um, and this is, you know, about, again, a strange, you know, conclusion, considering um, the alternative is, is you know, the most harmful product, combustible cigarettes. Um, but, but their MDO focus on a, a Juul apparently not providing this data or not addressing their question. We know that Juul's applications, unlike the many other small businesses whose, whose applications for flavor products were denied last year, Jules application actually got a phase three scientific review. Um, and they actually had a chance to respond to a deficiency letter that FDA issued to them um, sometime last year. And um, which is many companies, you know, didn't get that opportunity. Um, and so, you know, FDA said that, F, you know, Jules' response to that deficiency and, and their in, in, incomplete tox profile uh, forced them to make this decision to deny the application. Um, of course, then Jewel immediately filed a petition for review um, in the D.C. circuit. They're now based in in Washington, D.C. Um, and under the TCA, companies have uh, 30 days following the denial of a PMTA to um, request judicial review of that denial. So uh, Jewel did that pretty promptly. And um, also, they filed an, uh, for an emergency uh, stay, an emergency administrative stay of the MDO, citing to the fact that um, apparently they had submitted this data, thousands of pages worth of uh, HPHC aerosol data that apparently FDA didn't review. Um, and that, of course, you know, uh, without the stay, their, their business was going to be uh, irreparably harmed, which is one of the factors uh, for, for getting a stay. And um, the D.C. Circuit actually, I think, within 24 hours, I- issued that stay, um, saying that they were going to um, um, issue the stay, meaning Jewel could continue to sell their products despite the MDO, um, while they more formally reviewed the actual stay request over the next couple of weeks. Um, in the meantime, though, a um, couple of days ago, FDA essentially um, uh, pulled back the MDO by issuing the, their own administrative stay. And my interpretation of that, and I'll pause here to take any questions, but my interpretation is that as we've seen FDA do in other situations um, with respect to the flavored MDOs, they've uh, recognized as a result of the litigation um, that they did, in fact, miss some data, <laughs> surprisingly, um that Jules submitted and that they were going to essentially put the MDO on hold while they uh, re-review the the basis for the MDO. Um, and in fact if they determine that there is data missing that needs to that needs to be assessed, I believe that at that point FDA will FDA could uh, rescind the MDO entirely and therefore put Jules PMTAs back into scientific review for, you know, a complete assessment of that data. Um, or they could go the other way. They could decide that they're going to stick to their guns after they have re- reviewed what was, what Jules says was missing. Um, and, and, and uh, come back and say, even, even after we've reviewed that data, we still think it's incomplete. We're going to deny your products um, uh, and, and, we're going to lift the administrative stay at that point, in which case the litigation is back on. Um, so maybe I'll pause there. I probably spoke for too long, but let me know if that makes sense.
0: <laughs> no, I uh, actually thank you for the sort of comprehensive, um, update here and, and, uh, very much appreciate that. I, uh, <clears throat> I had a couple of questions, but maybe sticking with the, the, the litigation here. Um, I, I know I had sort of seen some comments that, uh, I guess, uh, FDA would would it responds better or would rather deal with lawyers um, or I'm sorry would would I can't remember exactly what somebody said I'm sorry I'm screwing this up but um, ultimately the question is you know I don't know that anybody believes that FDA honestly just forgot to read or missed this 6000 pages of data and so uh, my question and I guess concern is I mean, this, this all feels a lot more like strategy than it feels like, um, FDA, you know, giving the college try at actually authorizing a product here. Does that, does that sound right?
1: It's certainly a reasonable interpretation of, of what FDA could be thinking. Um, I can't say for sure whether they actually missed this or not. It seems surprising because this is Juul. This is the PMTA that everyone was waiting for. This is the PMT that they had, um, you know over two years to review or had been reviewing for over two years um this is uh the application that presumably fda had kind of the most personnel on top of um so for them to to be for them to to uh miss key data and then issue a very aggressive denial and and uh press release that you know um was in many ways different from other press releases and other denials where they were kind of very, very um, uh, openly telling retailers to stop selling products um, is a bit, is, is, you know, was a bit shocking in my, in my, in my interpretation. Um, could, this, could this be part of a strategy? Sure. I mean, um, you know, again, I think it's odd that FDA Official, I know. I know Commissioner Calif, in in some statements, um, mentioned you know uh, that this was going to be uh, that this denial of Juul was you know uh, part of FDA's plan to uh, overall uh, it, it reduce harm to youth. But the actual denial itself, as I mentioned, didn't get into the youth issue, right? It 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 it. it it seems like you know they they focused on this very specific scientific issue that that Joule was able to rather easily defend. It seems again we haven't seen the final result of all this, but very quickly was able to come up with arguments, you know, scientific factual arguments to, to counter FDA's um, the basis for their denial. Um, to me, it, it almost seems, and this is purely you know a conjecture on my part you know, that FDA in a way felt like it, it had to deny the application because of other pressures. Um, and now they're getting to a point where if the courts or, you know, come back and tell them otherwise, it's not their fault. You know, they, they tried to deny it, you know, but the courts said they couldn't because, you know, the data was there or FDA needs to review more data. And so, um, they may, if they end up coming to a different decision later on, it, it wasn't because they didn't try to ban Joule initially. You know, again, pure conjecture on my part. Um, but to me, again, it's hard to ignore all the outside factors that are at play here.
2: Yeah, it seems like there's really only one of two options, you know, in this scenario. Either FDA is woefully inept and, in fact, did miss thousands of pages of documents you know in the PMTA which it is their job to review and they have had 2 years to do so either they are incapable of doing the one job they were assigned or this is like you mentioned some form of strategy or you know uh political theater so like- that they can you know placate the anti vaping groups and make it look like, oh, you know, like you said, we tried to deny them, look, we didn't wanna do this, but the courts have now forced us, you know? And I think either of those options coming from the Food and Drug Administration is terrible. Like whether either they are inept or they are, you know, totally at the whim of political pressure, neither of which is a good outcome.
0: I totally agree with that. I did, uh, you know, the other question that I, I had um, that you sort of brought up was, um, you know, I, I've heard, I, I can't remember who said it, um, but, uh, you know, there was apparently no way that FDA could uh, deny Jules' application based on the whole, you know, the, the, the 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 manufactured youth vaping epidemic, um, but you brought it up uh, with the, you know, considering past marketing practices. And, and this is something I think that has implications for the rest of the industry. Um, obviously we've seen a lot of uh, questionably uh, uh, designed marketing uh, through over the years. You know, this is not a, certainly not just a new thing, but um, I, I, I guess I, I'm, I'm interested in, 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 you know, if FDA does have that option to deny an application based on past marketing practices, why didn't they just come out and say that? Why, why this whole charade?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, And we're obviously, you know, we haven't, we don't have a ton of data points on this issue yet, because FDA didn't really do its job with with the PMTs in the first place, right? They, They found a a roundabout way of denying, you know, 99% of applications for, for this fatal flaw, right? You know, not having a randomized controlled trial or longitudinal study for for a flavor comparing it to a tobacco flavor. Um, and so FDA failed to actually review companies applications and, and give substantive, you know, um, um, product specific MDOs or, or deficiency letters. So we still don't really know what FDA's thinking is on, on on that type of specific question on past marketing practices. I don't think FDA would be able to deny an application solely based on past marketing. I think it would have to be a combination of, you know, here are some examples from your past where you, uh, in FDA's view, perhaps um, were targeting, you know, uh, kids or youth. Um, and the fact that your current marketing plan, you know, doesn't adjust for that properly, or there is, there's a youth issue with your products today. Um, uh, I think it would have to be tied in to what's happening today and what is appropriate for the protection of public health of, of today's population. So, but I, I I don't think it's a non-factor, right? I I don't think it's a non-factor. I think it would have been hard for FDA to, for that reason, deny Juul based on what it did back in 2015, you know that marketing campaign when they launched. When Jewel could come back and say, in court, you know, here's where we are today. We don't sell flavors. We don't market to kids. We um, here's our data on who's using our products. Um, so I think you know FDA wouldn't be able to, to solely rely on the on that type of a past behavior issue to deny an application. One thing I would like to note, though, while we're on the topic of Jewel. Um, to me, the, 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 and again, I don't know if this is part of FDA's, you know, some strategy that we don't know about, I don't know, but in, in looking at the, the their denial of jewel based on this, on this toxicity issue, it's almost as if FDA had to, you know, twist their arm to come up with this uh, denial because what they essentially were doing is treating the application as if. It was a true pre-market application, meaning as if Jewel wasn't already on the market being used by two to three million people. And in that in that sense, you know, if this was truly a new product that was just being introduced that had not been introduced yet that FDA was reviewing for the first time. I, I could see FDA saying, OK, you know, we need to have a very clear understanding of the tox profile um, before we could let it come to market so that we know whether or not, you know, this is going to be a safe alternative to smoking. And, um, but treating it that way and ignoring the reality that this is a product that is being used by millions of adults whose alternative may be smoking cigarettes, that to me is a fundamental misunderstanding of the APPH standard. Because you can't ignore, you know, that people who are using the product today might switch and go back and who are former smokers might otherwise be smoking a much more harmful product. And it seems like FDA kind of pretended like they, they, that, that wasn't going to, that wasn't part of their analysis and ignored it when it, when it should have been a key feature of, of how they reviewed the application.
2: Yeah,
0: that is a little bizarre. FDA does tend does seem to be doing an awful lot of pretending lately, you know, proposing uh, the ban on menthol and, and this very low nicotine standard, um, you know, sort of as as you've sort of, I guess, illustrated here that, you know, what's the alternative for people that's going to be buying illicit cigarettes, um, which, you know, arguably that that causes or creates new questions, new new issues, new public health concerns. Um, and, and that does not, <clears throat> uh, hopefully those are things that FDA will take seriously in reading all of the comments on these rules. But, um, it just seems that, you know, moving forward with these rules, it, it seems that the agency is ignoring that, um, the darker side of, 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 you know, the consequences here. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, 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 uh, I, I think maybe we've, we've probably given, given Jewel itself a, a, a quite a bit of coverage here, that was sort of the, uh, the, the big news story. Um, Danielle, I don't know if you had any more more to say or questions about Juul.
2: No, I think a lot of it is just going to be, you know, a wait and see kind of game.
0: Yeah, so I, I guess if there were anything else to touch on, on this topic, um, uh, you know, Azeem, uh, what's, uh what's kind of the timeline here? How much time does FDA have to uh, come to a decision on this now? And um, any any expectations going through the next couple months?
1: Yeah, um, you know, we, we there's no there's no specific, you know, timeline or deadline for FDA to make a decision on, you know, uh, whether or not it's going to rescind the MDO entirely. Um, we, we've seen in other cases in the flavor MDOs uh, where companies um, like Turning Point, for example, they went through a, a, a similar situation where they uh, got denied their application and went back to FDA and said, y- "You, you didn't see this data we provided." And FDA agreed eventually and 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 rescinded the MDO um, within a few weeks. Now, I don't, I think, you know, we're, we're probably going to take FDA a little bit longer uh, than that to to make a decision. And again, I think obviously. We, Given the political ramifications and whatever bigger picture issues and strategies they're dealing with, it could probably be a few months. I know that in the court order that uh, granted the the joint motion that FDA and, and Jewel filed to put the case in abeyance, um, I think the court requested some uh, status updates every every few weeks. Um, you know, so you know, so before the court moves forward with the appeal process and. And setting a briefing schedule for the appeal, um, they've asked for somewhat regular updates from from the FDA. Um, but it, I think this could probably, you know, take several weeks or months um, before we know whether or not there's going to be an actual appeal, if the MDO isn't rescinded, or if the FDA does agree to to you know rescind the MDO
0: and, and put the applications back into review all right and and while we're on the topic of um courts and judges doing science instead of the science organization um uh and I'm I am not totally up to speed on this case but um what uh what's the status of the Triton case and uh the question that was handed to me was what's taking so long
1: <laughs> yeah that's a great question i'm a bit surprised that we haven't had a decision on the merits of the Triton case um in the fifth circuit um although you know these things it's it's again there's there's no deadline for the court to to make a decision it, it could qu- courts have sat on cases for for months or and sometimes years um but the triton case was you know obviously this is the case in the fifth circuit where we have the opinion um on the stay of that mdo uh which um the, the court kind of you know, called FDA out, you know, for this switcheroo for suddenly requiring companies to uh, test their flavors in a way that they never required before. Um, in that case, you know, moved pretty quickly. They had an oral argument, I believe back in January. Um, and, um, now it's obviously we're, we're in July. So, you know, I, I think it, it could come anytime at this point. Um, I certainly think um, we, we could see a decision um, before the end of the summer. Um, but there's, again, there's no guarantee. There's no timeline. It's possible for the court to, to wait until, you know, even up to a year. Um, but there, yeah, I mean, th- that's the case that's kind of leading the pack. There have been other cases that have now also had oral arguments in the uh, 11th circuit. There were a number of uh, petitioners, um, they had arguments back in May. Um, the seventh circuit had an argument, uh, before that. Um, so yeah, it's just a matter of, you know, waiting to see which one of these uh, circuits will, will issue a decision first. Um, and, and, you know, hopefully in favor of the industry.
0: Yeah. Uh, fingers crossed. Of course, that hasn't really gotten us very far, but, uh, we'll keep them crossed anyway. Um, uh, it, I, I guess moving uh, abruptly along, um, the other question is about synthetic nicotine, and uh, I don't know, you know, what level of involvement you've had with with folks um, submitting PMTAs for synthetic nicotine products. But um, the question is, uh, is, is synthetic nicotine going to become an enforcement priority for FDA now?
1: Yeah, great question. So, um, so, so synthetic nicotine, you know, became subject to the tobacco control act back on march 15th and of course uh that legislation um gave companies a a mere 60 days to to file uh pmcas which of course we know is a process that should take years and take um you know long-term data if fda seeking long-term data um basically impossible to do a complete job of in, in in two months but the um uh, the legislation gave companies that brief period of time to submit applications by May 14th. And um, for companies who got applications in by that deadline, the legislation gave them an additional 60 days until I think July 13th, which is coming up now next week um, to essentially market the products that are subject to those applications um, without the threat of, of enforcement Um, Come July 14th, however, the products that don't, synthetic nicotine products that don't have an actual authorization, an actual PMTA grant order, then um, become technically illegal uh, in violation of of the the pre-market review requirements of the statute. And FDA has the ability, subject to its enforcement discretion, to enforce regardless of your PMTA status, unless you're authorized. So what does that mean? Well, it means that even though companies have not received acceptance letters or, 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 uh, you know, filing letters, or we have really no idea. I haven't heard anything about even how many applications FDA has received. I know the first time around, you know, it was, we, we, we quickly learned from FDA that there were millions of applications filed. Um, I personally haven't heard a peep as to, you know, how many applications actually were submitted. But presumably, based on, you know, folks that I, my clients and I know others, it, to me it sounds like there may have been maybe even more PMTAs submitted for synthetic nicotine products than than even the original applications. Um, but come July 13th or July 14th, it, it, FDA has the ability Um, even if an application is still pending to, to force synthetic nicotine products off the market, to, to begin the enforcement process by sending warning letters to companies and saying, even though you submitted a PMTA, we're going to ask you to come off the market because we have the authority to do so, um, because of the risk to youth, for example, um, while we review your application. Um, don't know exactly what's going to happen on, on July 13th. Um, it's, it's possible. I I think what FDA would do is, um, uh, you know, target companies, uh, certain brands, you know, the puff bars of the world, uh, potentially, um, or the nicotine disposables, uh, and, and specifically ask those products to come off the market. Um, you know, even if they have PMCA's pending, um, and hopefully, not do something more drastic, and and force and try to somehow force all synthetic nicotine off the market.
0: Yeah, and uh, this is this is probably a good opportunity to mention that we do have an active call to action on our website in support of the American Vapor Manufacturers Citizens Petition uh, to FDA, uh, urging to uh, keep. The open system products for which a uh, with synthetic nicotine um, for which a PMTA has been submitted to be allowed to stay on the market through the uh, July 14th uh, deadline. Um, And so we had a, you can, if you're a new listener or a a previous listener and you just didn't hear it, we had, we did a whole uh, Twitter space about the synthetic nicotine um, uh, citizens petition. You can go back, you can find that on our, on all of our podcast places. We're on SoundCloud. We're on Spotify now. Um, so definitely check that out and submit your comments in support of the citizens petition. Uh, and hopefully we won't see another <laughs> math. Hopefully we won't see a mass exodus of these products um, at the hands of FDA. Um, but uh, yeah, so uh, back to it, uh, you know, you, you kind of brought up this whole synthetic nicotine thing. I think should probably bring up some concerns for folks, because this was an amendment to the Tobacco Control Act, something that I know when I first got involved in all of this uh, for several years, you know, the the feedback that that we were hearing was that uh, members of Congress really didn't have any appetite for opening up the Tobacco Control Act again. And I sort of interpreted that as you know, they didn't, they didn't want to do anything one way or the other. Let's, you know, let's, let's let the law do what the law is supposed to do. Clearly that is not what the law is doing. But, um, so we did have this recent amendment for synthetic nicotine. And then, uh, over the past week, um, representative de Saulnier, uh, from California tried to get something wedged into the, uh, national defense appropriations act, the NDAA, uh, and, uh, fortunately we are we're, we're seeing reports that that has been, uh, stripped out or it's just not going to be put in. But, uh, you know, the question is, uh, it are, are, it, are members of Congress now starting to, to, to feel like they need to, to get the Tobacco Control Act stricter than it already is. And, you know, obviously with Desaunier's, um, uh, uh amendment, which seemed, Absurdly focused on vapor products. Um, certainly, folks are trying to do this, uh, but the question, you know, for you is, you know, in your your travels around DC, is, uh, are 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 do people seem to be a little bit more uh, amenable to to tightening the screws here? Well, you know,
1: we, we've always seen, you know, these this heightened um, concern from members of Congress and senators, <clears throat> excuse me, um, pushing for new legislation, whether it's to ban flavors or in this case to force recalls of products on the market. So I'm not entirely surprised you know, to see that. Um, I, You know, I I don't think that legislation would have, I, I actually hadn't seen it. I, I, I just recently heard about that proposal and again i just to me it just seemed like a ridiculous attempt to try to kind of just gain attention probably as we get closer to the midterms um without any real chance at that kind of thing passing um but no i think you know we, we have this very aggressive um you know house oversight committee we have a couple of very uh aggressive senators more, more than a couple um that um Despite all the problems that we are facing in today's world, um, they see vaping as just kind of like the go to issue, I think, to to demonstrate some sort of, you know, um, badge of honor, you know, that they're that they that they're protecting the public health or they're protecting kids um, or they're doing something, you know, um, for the benefit of, 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 of society. And it just seems like vaping is the punching bag and um, we, we see it every year. And, and my bigger concern with the way Congress treats the vaping issue is that it, it always seems like, um, and this happened with synthetic nicotine um, legislation, it happened with the PACT Act amendment back in, at the end of 2020, where um, rather than actually uh, bringing legislation to the floor and debating it and and, and having uh, it, it become law through the process that it, the laws are intended to go through, it, these vaping bills are always these riders or add-ons to legislations that have nothing to do with the FDA or tobacco or vaping. You know, they're appropriations bills or spending bills um, that they tack on this language to amend a definition of the PACT Act to include vaping or to amend, to change the definition of a tobacco product to include non-tobacco products um and you know uh, and those are those past those are passing right they're, they're getting the votes and, and getting those through you know shoving those through and you know vaping is always the the industry that gets getting the short end of it and not getting their um you know really their you can always see their, their due process to to, to to have their arguments heard as to whether those types of laws are potentially ha- uh, could have negative public health consequences we're not even having that debate in Congress. It's just this, this presumption that vaping is bad. and Any law that restricts vaping in some way or denies it or bans it is going to benefit the public health. And, you know, that has to change. There, there has to be a more discussion about the harms that these types of laws could, could, uh, could have on, on the population.
0: Yeah, and, I you know, I don't know if this is uh... – Really, you know, my my question here is, uh, well, I, you know, we saw uh, after the the MDO for Jewel came out, we saw um, you know Krishna Morthy uh, get together with the, the Pave ladies and 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 take a victory lap, uh, and you know, sort of openly admit in to coercing FDA or or uh, I guess influencing is the more appropriate word uh, to make this decision. Um, but you know, as you're you're talking about, uh, you know, vaping sort of being the the, um, the most popular scapegoat and 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 this 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 opportunity for for lawmakers to kind of whip up votes and, and get attention, especially going into the midterms. Um, but my I, my question is, and forgive my naivete and, and I'm not a political science person, um, are there any consequences for this? I mean, this is we're supposed to have a we're supposed to have a scientific review. The regulators should be functioning somewhat independently of political pressure. Should people like Krishnamurthy, Dick Durbin, and, and uh you know, should there be consequences for what they're doing, or are there consequences other than votes?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. <laughs> I'm not sure if I'm the right, right person to, to have an answer to that question, but I personally believe there should be consequences, right? I mean, I think there should be a limit to how much influence politicians have on these decisions from the agencies and um, because really it just comes down to you know who's ha- who has the most funding and the most lobbying power to, to influence those decisions um, and obviously you know you know the, the, the folks at the Bloomberg philanthropies and, and others have, have put in um, you know billions of dollars at this point in, into into this fight uh, which you know the vaping industry, The independent vaping industry just has no way to compete uh with so i mean there needs to be you know consequences um you know for undue influence i know it's something that uh you know some folks have looked into um but you know the reality is you know i think what we learned following the jewel decision is that there is almost no fear right of of coming out and and in Frank, you know, there, it seems like these members of Congress are, are falling over themselves to, to take credit for, you know, the jewel denial. And, you know, anytime PMCAs are denied, you know, it's 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 to them. They're they're they, they must be doing their own you know risk benefit analysis and, and determining that it's to their benefit, you know, um, to 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 be on one side of this and to 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 claim victory, to claim that this is their doing. Um, even if it, you know, um, it makes it seem like they are, they're, you know, inappropriately influencing what should be scientific decisions from an independent uh, federal agency. Um, so until, until they're, and I, at at this point, I guess the only real consequence is if there's enough, uh, like you said, you know, votes on the other side to, to, um, punish them with, um, but they clearly, you know, um, are, are speaking to their base and, um, believe this is going to help their, you know, individual causes, I, I, you know, to, to stay in Congress. Um, so until, until, you know, there's broader kind of changes within how our structure works, I I don't really know if there's going to be any way to, to force something, uh, some other kind of results here. What was
2: interesting reading over, I think it was, uh, AVM that posted, um, one of Jules, pardon me, I'm not a lawyer, but one of their recent filings, it was like a partially redacted version, but they even went so far in that to specifically call out particular, you know, legislators and talk about this sort of undue influence on the FDA. And they had, you know, everything that they were citing was in the public record, right? Because these legislators, you know, they go on live streams or they do, you know, public, you know, speaking engagements And they clearly, you know, like we mentioned, take credit for this. Um, And Jewel argued that in one of their in one of their filings that we saw. And so it seems to me like there's there is no technical, you know, rule breaking, because I would think if there were, you know, these politicians wouldn't be so, you know, unabashedly taking these victory laps and Jewel wouldn't have so much public data to cite, you know, showing proof of this. And it just seems kind of wild um, that they, you know, what is the purpose? I know I'm preaching to the choir here, but what is the purpose of having an independent scientific regulatory body whose job it is to make these decisions and look this over if the politicians are just going to demand that they do, you know, whatever they want, right? Like, what is the purpose of the FDA if they can't even make their own decisions? That's just what seems crazy to me.
1: And it undermines the, 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 the public health and the confidence that the public you know should have in these agencies um, to make these right decisions. Um, and that, that to me is is really the saddest part of this whole thing.
0: Yeah. So maybe swinging the pendulum uh, another direction here, um, the last thing, and we might be able to let you go a little early, depending on how how this goes. I know your time is precious. And thank you again for for coming to speak with us. Um But uh, I think it was it was it last week's uh, uh, last week or the week before. I'm getting lost here. Uh, The Supreme Court decision, West Virginia versus EPA. Uh, We've been getting some questions as to whether or not that decision uh, has any effect on other regulatory agencies, specifically FDA and FDA's tobacco regulations. Um, Did you have any did you have a chance to kind of look into that? and, And did you have any thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, sure. So, you know, um, I'm I'm certainly not a, an expert on uh, Clean Air Act or the EPA regulations, but uh, basically, my my understanding is that you know what the, the EPA promulgated rules um, that that essentially would uh, uh, allow or force utility companies to to seek out um, alternative forms of of electricity production beyond coal you know uh, cleaner forms like wind and solar energy and and um, the question was did, did Congress in, in that statute, the Clean Air Act provide the EPA with that clear author with clear authorization and the statutory language to develop those kinds of rules and requirements And um, the Supreme Court held in that case that, that they hadn't. Um, that the the, the the language that they were that that uh, those regulations were based on in the in the statute uh, was language that had never been interpreted that way before. Again, I'm not an expert on the Clean Air Act, but um, it was kind of a novel interpretation of that statutory language, and um, because essentially what the EPA was going to was requiring companies to do um, had such political and economic significance that Congress could not have intended EPA to do something like that without, if unless they were, you know, unless it was very clear in the in the statute that they could do that. And um, again, in this case, in the EPA case, they decided it wasn't clear that they could do that. Um, interestingly, you know, in, in the opinion of that decision, they refer back to the old Brown and Williamson v FDA case, which you might be familiar with. That's the case that Supreme court decided back in 2000 when the, back in the nineties, back in 1996 prior to the tobacco control act, FDA attempted to regulate cigarettes and smokeless tobacco as drugs or drug delivery devices um, on the, based on the principle or the idea that nicotine was addictive, and and the tobacco companies um, were essentially using cigarettes and tobacco to deliver nicotine into the body. And because they knew about the nicotine's effect on the body and um, its addictiveness, that um, therefore they were intending those cigarettes to be essentially drugs. Um, And that case went up to the Supreme Court. The FDA actually finalized the rule that that did that 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 gave FDA authority to regulate cigarettes as drugs, um, which of course would mean that cigarettes would have to go through um, a new drug application and this, you know, prove safety and effectiveness, which of course would not be possible with a combustible product. Um, and the Supreme Court held in Brown and Williamson that um, there's you know Congress could not have intended FDA to have authority to regulate the tobacco industry as as, as drugs, because um, that would have been such a remarkable change in, in how they regulate the, the tobacco industry. Um, and it would have essentially resulted in the banning of cigarettes, because, as I mentioned, cigarettes could never meet that safety and effectiveness standard for drugs. Um, and we know from the history of of how Congress has regulated tobacco and cigarettes through through different, you know, legislation requiring uh, warnings and advertising restrictions, for example, that Congress never intended FDA to, to, to try to ban cigarettes as drugs, and so that was actually, uh, I think, mentioned in in the opinion of this case as an example of where the Supreme Court has has has, has not allowed an agency to uh, uh, take a to to do something where they didn't have clear authority to do so. Um, So that's, that's kind of the background. Um, And I've been getting this question a lot, you know, how does that help us today, if at all, with um, where we are with the Tobacco Control Act? Because because the difference now, which which is, you know, the, the, the reason why it doesn't automatically help us here is because we now do have the Tobacco Control Act. We do have, a statute that that gives fda very clear authorization over tobacco products which is now includes anything you know whether it's synthetic nicotine or not it does have very clear requirements for pre-market authorization it it does have um give fda a clear ability to deem things to be tobacco products Um, and we have had challenges to the deeming rule in the past when the deeming rule went uh became effective in back in 2016 there were a number of challenges to, to the statute, to the deeming rule. And, um, you know, we're here because they all failed, unfortunately. Um, and, and if you look back at the legislative history of the Tobacco Control Act, there was discussion about um, the industry and, and, and even e-cigarettes. There was discussion about e-cigarettes, which are a fairly new product at the time, uh, and, how, and how they would fall under, you know, um, FDA's tobacco authority. So the bottom line is, is there's not an immediate sort of, oh, we can point to this EPA decision to now say, you know, FDA doesn't have authority over e-cigarettes or, um, you know, can't require PMTAs. Like, I don't think there's something that obvious, but, you know, there, I have been thinking about this and I know this question has come up. Um, there may still be a way, you know, to, to somehow use this opinion. Um and again, this, this is totally at this point hypothetical, but um, one argument potentially is that, you know, what FDA has done through the PMTA process by banning at this point, 99% of all flavored products that have applied, you could argue that, that, that they've essentially established a de facto flavor ban and that really any kind of flavor ban can only should really only come from um, uh, come, come through the rulemaking process through a product standard, which FDA has authority to do under the Tobacco Control Act. So again, haven't had a chance to flush this out yet, but there may be a way of, of arguing you know does does FDA have clear authorization from Congress to basically ban flavored ends? without going through the rulemaking process. You know, does it have authority to to do that through the section nine ten pre market review process when they should be going through, you know, a section nine oh seven rulemaking process? Again, that's perhaps that's a bit of a stretch, but it's something to think about. Um, you know, I'm sure some smart people will look into this and, and try to see if there's a way to make that kind of an argument. Um kind of uh throw the industry uh you know um, um an opportunity here but of course that being the case i think the, the other side of that argument is that congress clearly gave fda authority to to acquire all new products to go through pre-market review and to to prove that they are apph if the result of that is that flavors don't get through that's just how it is congress gave them that authority um so again I hope does that answer your question.
0: <laughs> I think it does, and I, I of course I I think I have another question, which is uh, you know based on appro- the appropriate for the protection of public health. That seems to be a bit of an ambiguous standard. I know that you know FDA uh, is 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 always been really good about just citing the or quoting the uh, the statute back to people, but you know this idea of it. it the, all that I can really come up with is that FDA has sort of come up with this ambiguous not really clear balance of, you know, youth use versus adult switching. Um, But I'm sort of curious if there's more, uh, more work that can be done to kind of hold FDA's feet to the fire to sort of concretely establish the APPH standard, um, rather than just kind of, it, it it just it, it just doesn't seem very clear to me what that is. And I don't know that anybody has actually come up with a succinct definition of what is appropriate for the protection of public health in this case. Um, so I, I don't know if there was a question there, but that certainly got me thinking about it.
1: No, I think it's a great comment. Um, I think, you know, it, it. It I think we need to look into this closely and, and see if there's a way that this rule could could help us, given that, you know, um, I mean, in general, I think it's it's it's. The fact that F, the Supreme Court is saying that, um, you know, the agencies, you know, they need to have clear authority to do what they what they do. In general, I think that's a good thing. Um, and whether it's with PMT process or something else, um, uh, FDA needs to be held accountable here. Um, and, you know, um, going back to what we talked about earlier, accountability, you know, do they have clear authority to to implement the rule, the, the the statute, the way they are doing so? Do they need to define APPH in a in a more clear fashion? What are the requirements for those for those t- to meet that standard? You know, they can't keep moving the goalposts and changing the rules, you know, behind closed doors, and then denying companies and not giving companies a chance to to answer questions or or prove themselves, right? Um, can we, can FDA be held to account to to use the science like they're supposed to?
0: Yeah. And of course, I, I, so we've almost managed to squeeze the full 60 minutes out of you. Um, But just, I guess, one more comment, and and I guess a reminder for folks who aren't, aren't aware of, you know, what getting a, a PMTA actually means. These are, these authorizations are not chiseled in stone. And they can be brought up for review, I, I think. I know with MRTP, it's every three years. I assume it's similar with, with the PMTA. And so having some sort of concrete standards, um, I think, gives companies, you know, as you're saying, confidence that they will continue to have this marketing authorization uh, renewed or available. Um, but if, like you said, FDA continues to change the goalposts, anybody that's gotten authorization um, has to be operating knowing that that's sort of always in jeopardy.
1: Yeah, no, that's right. The the PMTA um, process requires post market surveillance. So, so once an authorization is granted, that's that's not the end of the day. You know, you still have to um, provide FDA a very detailed post market surveillance strategy. Um, You have to monitor exactly, you know, uh, who, where, and how you're selling your products. Uh, and if there's any hint of a concern, you know, that it's 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 being used by a youth or or or, or someone else that shouldn't be um, um, FDA could could pull back that authorization. Um, and so, yeah, none of this is written in stone, which, again, another reason why I'm surprised, you know, um, we saw a denial in Jules case because FDA could have very easily uh, authorized it and, and then monitored very closely to make sure that, you know, kids were not getting a hold of it. Um, And if that ever happened, you know, it it would be pulled back Uh, so that that authority
0: does does exist. Yeah. Excellent. Well, um, like I said, we've we've managed to have you for the full hour here again. Thank you very much for joining us, Azim, and giving us your time today and helping to to clear up um, all of these things. But before I get into the closing spiel, I, I guess I should give you and Danielle an opportunity to pipe in. If there's anything that we we missed or didn't pay enough attention to now's the moment to uh, shine the light on it
1: no i think we covered uh quite a bit and again thanks for having me
0: all right fantastic all right well with that we'll uh we'll close out uh, today's edition of casaw's twitter spaces uh thank you everyone for joining us thank you to all the regulars who keep showing up to this stuff and keep doing all the work that we need done Uh, and of course the overarching theme here is that uh, for as much as we've been talking about companies and their applications and the things that they're facing, all of this comes back on the consumers. And so, you know, we want to make sure that we're going to have consistent access to products that we enjoy that help us stay off of cigarettes. Uh, and so thank you, Azim, for all the work that you've done uh, and for a lot of the, the, the folks in listening in, 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 in our space here that uh, continue to tirelessly work. Uh, And make sure that not only are people switching to these products, but these products can stay available. Uh, And with that, uh, thank you once again for listening. Uh, You go check out our website, CASAA.org. We've got merch, we've got a donate button, and we've got all the information you need to learn about tobacco harm reduction and ways that you can get engaged and uh, talk to lawmakers and hope that we can keep this silly nonsense to a minimum. Um, No guarantee that that's going to happen. Um, but with that, thanks for tuning in and we'll see y'all back here in a couple weeks.